Okay, for our second message today, to be brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, Walking Worthily. Good afternoon. Brian, I didn't turn anything off, did I? Okay. There's a power strip under there, and I was trying to make sure that I, I'm kind of low, low on power with my, uh, my laptop here. Or uh, not laptop, but my iPad. So good afternoon. As, as mentioned, Walking Worldly Part 2. So last week I spoke, Walking Worldly Part 1, and uh, just to kind of go over some of the uh, kind of a little bit of a review. Last week uh, was my second message in a study on First Thessalonians, uh, Paul's letter to this church that he established. So I am going to kind of go quickly just and review some of the things we talked about last week because we're still here in chapter 2. We're going to look at some verses today. We're not going to get through all of uh, all 12 verses of the first chapter uh, by the end of today. But the title, Walking Worthily, comes from, as I mentioned last week, verse 12. Actually starts in verse 11, but he says something in verse 12 which inspired the title of this section within the series of 1 Thessalonians that I am going over. Paul says, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children, that's in verse 11, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So we reviewed that last week. And what we're doing is, is we're talking about what Paul's laying out right before he says this, which gives us examples of what it looks like to walk worthily or worthy. Now these four words, exhorted, charged, to walk worthy. These are the words that he uses. He is calling upon the Thessalonians. He's admonishing them. He's persuading them. Not just with words, but with his actions as well. That they walk or maintain a certain walk in life and conduct that is suitable in a manner that's becoming of the calling that they've been given. And that is the calling into God's glorious kingdom. Now as I mentioned last week, there's four different characteristics in the first 12 verses that we're going to bring out in the process. I'm actually probably going to end that the next time, uh, but today we're going to look at one of these characteristics. Last week, we looked at walking with purpose, and we looked at walking with boldness and courage, and we saw examples of this from Paul, as well as from Jesus, and even, because it was the day before Pentecost, we even saw that the early apostles did the same thing. The disciples turned apostles. Today, we are going to look at a characteristic that all of us are confronted with in life almost daily. We can look through history and see thousands, and I mean thousands, probably millions of examples of men and women who have foregone this characteristic in making decisions. Forgoing this characteristic or its use in our life can result in the loss of marriages, friendships, family, our jobs, and even our freedom as it can land us in prison. 
Forgoing this characteristic that I'm getting ready to mention can cause great damage in almost all aspects of our life. This concept that I'm referring to is that of integrity. Integrity. Unfortunately, we see stories in the news constantly. News about people foregoing integrity in making decisions. Whether this be in politics, as we know, politicians being found to be, you know, in some sort of scandal, some sort of scheme. Business people, we see businesses. Obviously, it's all over our world, but we see the big, high-profile businesses and individuals that get caught up in some sort of situation where it shows that they lacked integrity. We see this in schools. We see it in marriages. We even see it in sports. As you know, there are scandals in sports, whether it be coaches or players betting like on a particular game that they have some sort of control over. Or just a few years ago, people have heard of the New England Patriots who are accused of filming the other or the opposition's coaches' signals to try to figure out what signals they were sending in so they could try to figure out and get an edge. We see this also, unfortunately, and we've experienced this probably among Christian leaders and Christian organizations. No matter what we do in life, whether a politician, a school teacher, a business person, or even a grocery store cashier, it is a characteristic that reveals our true motivations in all we do. So let's go to 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, and we're going to read verses 3 through 6. Paul says this in verse 3, For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. And so today, we're looking at walking with integrity. Walking with integrity. If you were to look in the English dic dictionary, the term integrity is defined by one, the quality of being honest and having strong moral principles, such as moral uprightness. And two, the state of being whole and undivided. I like that second definition because I think all of us can be in, in a situation or think of a situation where maybe there was a little bit of a division within us, right? We're faced with a scenario and we know what the right thing is. But there's a part of us that wants to not do the right thing and at the heart of it is because that option that direction will bring us some sort of gain, whether financial or other. In these passages that we just read in verses 3 through 6, Paul makes it clear what motivated him and his associates. Now last week we discussed, there seems to be some possible criticisms 
of Paul and his associates. And just to remind you, when I say his associates, when Paul first came to Thessalonica, he was with Timothy and Silas. They were with him. And so he's talking about us and referring to himself as well as Timothy and Silas. But there seems to be some possible criticisms of Paul and his associates from outside the church community. From this section, it seems apparent that not only was this criticism, as we touched upon last week, coming from people that were accusing Paul coming to Thessalonica without a purpose or without aim or that he didn't have earnestness or that is basically a genuine care for the Thessalonians. And maybe they cited him running off really quickly after establishing this church. Here, Paul touches on the integrity of his mission because it's possible some people thought or accused him of being just like a lot of those fly-by-night preachers or religious leaders. Here in verse 3 through 6, Paul touches on the integrity of his mission as it is possible. We don't know. Paul might have just been trying to be proactive and, and, and ward against possible questions of what his mission was or what the intent was. We do know this, that their goal was simple. It was not to please men, but to please God and bring glory to Him. Now the nature of Paul's message in verse 3, we see that Paul starts by discussing this word exhortation. Our exhortation did not come, and he's going to give us some information. He's going to give us some things that, his, that, did, that, that was not present in terms of what motivated his exhortation. This word in the Greek exhortation is periklesis, periklesis. And it generally means to appeal or persuade. And sometimes when we see this word in the New Testament, it can be a reference to cheering or encouraging people or sometimes consoling or comforting people. Here in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul uses this, this word, exhortation, or exhortation, Paul wanted to be clear about the aim or intent of this exhortation. Paul dispels three, here in this first verse that we're covering today, three mischaracterizations of his motivation and method for bringing the gospel message to the Thessalonians. These words, as a commentator, Michael Holmes, quoted, are a trio of words that reflect traditional charges against traveling charlatans of various sorts. So these were three characteristics that were common because in Paul's day, there was lots of people traveling around with some new message. And there were many of them that had these characteristics which Paul is trying to dispel that he himself did not. The first charge was that his message came in error. He was wrong. What he preached was not something that was of God, was not accurate, was not truthful. The word error here in the Greek is the word plains. And in his context, it refers to the truthfulness or the accuracy of Paul's message. And perhaps there were people outside of the church that were claiming that Paul was not right about what he preached. The criticisms could have come on three sides. Jews, we know that Jews were opposed to the early Christian message. They opposed the idea of a crucified Messiah. It would be at odds with the way that they would 
have envisioned the Messiah to come. They looked at the Messiah as being a great military leader that was going to drive out the Romans. And so it could have been that his fellow Jews, as we see throughout the, the book of Acts, opposing Paul's message. It could have been from Gentiles, people that were of Greek and Roman persuasion when it comes to the way that they look at religion. It would have possibly been something in their minds as foolish. The idea of a risen Christ. The idea that a, that a man would die and he would be the savior and then he would be resurrected back into a body because their focus was so much on this idea of the soul going into an everlasting afterlife. It could have also been among Christians. We must remember that Paul was not one of the original disciples of Jesus. And because of that, he faced some criticism and some questioning regarding his authority. Many of Paul's letters, he's having to say that I'm an apostle of Christ, and he gives examples. And so it could have been from these three areas, we don't know, that Paul possibly would have been charged that his message came in error. The second charge was that his message came in uncleanness. This word uncleanness is the Greek word akatharsia. Akatharsia is a word that means lewdness or impurity of motive. Now many times this word is used of sexual immorality. We see this in the New Testament and some have even argued that Paul was actually specifically trying to dispel the notion that he came to them with a motivation to get followers because he was motivated by some sort of sexual immorality some sort of sexual impropriety for his traveling. This would be something that was somewhat common, believe it or not, for religious preachers. They were not above sometimes getting in trouble or sometimes being shown to be motivated by some sort of sexual immorality. And it's something in this world that people would not have bat an eye at. If we remember Acts the 15th chapter, we know that it's one of three things that they thought was the most urgent to tell the Gentile churches to abstain from was sexual immorality. So it was a very prevalent thing that went on in this part of the world during this time. And it's, of course, not something that's limited to the first century. As we know, it's a sad truth that we can all probably recall numerous stories, numerous stories about sexual immorality among Christian leaders and even some within our own Church of God tradition. Just recently, a couple that come to my mind, and maybe you've heard about this, was number one, Jerry Falwell Jr. You guys all know who Jerry Falwell is. His father, the founder of Liberty University, uh, was a, I guess you could consider a fundamentalist uh, evangelical. Uh, and his son now is, or is not now, he's been removed, was found to be wrapped up in a very, and I won't go into details, but a, you know, a, a, a sexual immorality. That included his wife and another individual. An individual that was actually asked to be possibly the Secretary of Education as a president over the University of Liberty. Now, this was frustrating to me personally, although not, I mean, I, I, mean I, I got over it, obviously, but I, 
have a degree from the University of Liberty. And so it brought shame on that university, but more importantly, it brought shame on the name of Christ, as this is supposed to be an individual that's the president over a Christian university that held himself as being someone who's supposed to be a leader, a Christian leader. Another very sad story that's just recently came out was the story about a man by the name of Rabbi Zacharias. Rabbi Zacharias was a Christian apologist. He passed away a year or two ago from cancer. After his death, and he's written so many different things. I mean, he's written some of his, I mean, some, probably one of the most popular Christian apologists that has written many books. I think he wrote the book Jesus Among the Other Gods or something like that. Uh, but he has a lot of different books that he's written, all based on the idea of showing and demonstrating Jesus Christ as the Savior of the world and, and, and why Christianity makes sense. Well, after he passed away, it has come out and it's been confirmed, uh, even by his own organization that, you know, that he no longer is a part of, obviously, because of his death, that he had sexually abused multiple women. And he used his status as a Christian apologist that would travel around the world he used that as a way to do it. These are all sad stories. And so when we read this about Paul, we still live in a world where these things take place. And these are just high-profile situations. These are the ones we hear about because these are big names. We don't hear about just, you know, Brother Joe, you know, down the street at a community church that only people within that community know about. And unfortunately, this does go on too much, and it's damaging because it shows and it, it, it breaks trust from people, people in the church, people in the faith, as well as people that possibly that Christians are trying to evangelize. The third charge is that his message came to deceive or in deceit. Now, this is the Greek word dolos, and it refers to a bait or a method of entrapping. In fact, some translations use the word trick or trickery. Their message did not come in deceit or in trickery or as a way of an entrapment. This word dolos was originally used to describe fishermen catching fish with a bait, which is, of course, an imitation. Right? In these days, it was probably some sort of you know, bait fish that fish would typically eat but would have a hook on it or uh, maybe it was uh, nets that might look like uh, something, you know, that might be uh, made in such a way where the fish wouldn't see it. But in other words, but, but in any way, uh, we know that later that this word would develop into a metaphor for deceit or cunningness or treachery. The charge of being a trickster, again, just like being charged with sexual immorality, or even if it wasn't sexual immorality, what we were talking about with Paul, it was just general uh, uncleanness. We, we do know that this is something that still exists to this very day. But the charge of being a trickster or deceiver was in regard to how he preached or presented the gospel message and how he handled the scriptures. Now, thousands upon millions, I should say millions, I don't know why I'm saying millions, of individuals, of people have preached this word. We know that. 
Many of us have heard thousands of sermons. We've probably read thousands of articles and books. We know that there is a lot in the history of Christianity that has went on when it comes to this book and twisting it and turning it and making it say things that truly are not there. This even went on in Jesus' day. Let's go to Mark, the 7th chapter, verses 9. We see Jesus, when he was here on this earth, he often would criticize the teachings of the religious leaders for presenting the scriptures in a way that allowed them to selfishly circumvent what the scriptures plainly said. And we've heard this. We're breaking into context here. Jesus is being criticized, essentially, for his followers for not following the traditions of men. They're not washing their hands in the pots and all that stuff before they ate, like the elders and like the religious leaders did. And Jesus said this in verse 9. He said to them, All too well you reject the commandment of God that you keep your tradition. You reject the commandment, but you preserve your tradition. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother. And he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Jesus is quoting the law. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might be, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban. That is a gift to God. Then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect. Through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things you do. As Jesus said, God's law is very clear. Honor your father and your mother. But the scribes, they found a loophole. There's an interesting textual note here in the Net Bible translation. A footnote that explains this idea of Corban. I always was kind of confused on this. It says that Corban is a Hebrew loan word. It's transliterated in the Greek text and in most modern English translations. And it refers to something that has been set aside as a gift to be given to God at some later date. But which is still in the possession of the owner. And so what would happen is, is that there was this loophole where you essentially just had to say, oh, that money's Corbin, or this is Corbin. That's the word that they would use. And it would allow them, because it means set aside as a gift to God, it would allow them to buy step having to, maybe their elders or their mother and father needed some financial help, it would allow them to bypass that. But the difference is, is that it's just the words. They didn't have to give it to anybody. They didn't have to give it to the temple. It was a way of keeping this money for themselves. It was a loophole. And Jesus points to the selfish intent of many who use this loophole for their own gain. Paul himself, when it came to the way that you deal with scriptures, eventually would denounce the idea, because he knew it was happening. He knew that Jews did this. He knew that so-called Christians do this. He denounced the idea of handling the word of God deceitfully in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Now, he hasn't wrote this yet. He hasn't wrote this yet when we uh, are here... You know, in the, in, the, in the time that he wrote 1 Thessalonians. Corinthians comes later. But he says 
in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Because this is something that abounded, and it abounds still to this day. It abounds still to this day. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. On the contrary to those who may have charged Paul of such a thing, he did not propose, like many did, empty promises or follow the typical human schemes. You know, Paul's often quoted as saying, follow me as I follow Christ. And I think that when you read the passages, you see Paul was not a perfect man, never claimed to be so. Put himself king of the sinners, essentially, of those who first were crucified, not crucifying, but persecuting the church. But we know that Paul followed after the model that we see Jesus presented to us. He didn't, he didn't propose empty promises. He didn't propose, you know, he didn't follow after the, the human schemes. He didn't follow after the footsteps like the woman that he ran into that was the slave girl in Acts the 16th chapter, which we read about last week, who, to bring her master's gain, acted like she had a spirit or, you, you know, uh, would, would try to tell the fortunes to get some sort of monetary gain. He did not use these methods of deception that were employed so often in his time period of philosophical, wandering philosophers that were out mainly for financial gain. Another sad story that we too often hear about is some sort of Christian leader being caught in some sort of financial scandal. Whether that be asking people to donate money for a specific cause, all to be demonstrated later, of course, that it was just a ploy to get people's money for their own selfish wealth. In these situations, what's really the most sad part is that innocent people are victimized who probably, out of the goodness of their heart, are trying to do the right thing. I know that there are some individuals here that have went to church with people, or maybe even yourself, that in the past had sold very, uh, you know, uh, hot, you know, land, farms, possessions to give to the church to see eventually it just being completely mishandled to the point to where even the government had to step in and take it over. And I'm talking about the receivership of the Worldwide Church of God that took place, I think, in the mid-80s or something like that. We know that we see these stories, and stories like this one and we can think of all different examples. Think of examples, and I don't know the specific one. We, you, know, you hear preachers get on TV and ask for some sort of, whether it be a seed money or things like that. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong in and of itself if, it's, if there's truly integrity behind it, that they're really trying to do something for the Word of God or something for you know, God's cause. I'm not saying that, but too often you hear stories where People, you know, write in things and they have a prayer request or something. I, I, I don't know the specific one that I'm referring to, but I remember hearing about a story where behind some sort of evangelical organization, they found just dumpsters full of prayer requests that basically they opened up the envelope, took the money, and threw, threw away the prayer request. And maybe you've heard of stories like that yourself. Stories like this one, 
stories that we can think of, stories that we just read about a few minutes ago, and you know, the sexual immorality scandals among Christian leaders, they all demonstrate a lack of integrity on the part of the person carrying out the scandal. All of them. They all bring shame on the name of Christ, and they do damage to the true gospel message. There's people that probably have left the church because of these things. Now, I'm not putting, I mean, obviously it's their responsibility. It's their relationship with God. But I think there's something to be said about, you know, and I think the scriptures are clear that, you know, causing a little one to stumble, as we've read in the scriptures, is a serious matter. And I think Paul himself takes this very, very serious. So these are the three, the trio, right? The trio of characteristics that Paul's trying to dispel. But he does tell us what his true motivation is. And that is to please God and not men. He tells us that they, him, and Timothy, and Silas were approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. Now this word approved is the word test. And it has an interesting characteristic to it because it's a word that can refer to the testing or the assaying of metals. Which is a process that would be done to evaluate the metal's quality and its worth, its durability. You know, when Paul was first called by God, he didn't just automatically send him out to be a gospel preacher, an evangelist. God didn't say, all right, now I have this man who's extremely educated, that's trained in multiple languages, and has studied under one of the most revered rabbis in all of Judea, all of Palestine, who's also a Roman citizen, and is also extremely knowledgeable about, about the Greco-Roman culture. That's not how God operated. And we see this in the scriptures. He tested Paul. And this is what Paul is referring to. He tested him first by blinding him. As we know the story, the Damascus Road. And Jesus says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. Or the goads, as it says in the King James Version. He blinded him, and then he even allowed him. Here's another thing that I think that sometimes we don't think about. The Apostle Paul was somewhat alienated from many of the other high-profile figures of the early church. As many of them, they were scared of. They were skeptical. This man who was going out and rounding up Christians and putting them, to bring them back to Jerusalem to try them, they were scared of this individual, and they were skeptical that this was real. This is just, in their minds, probably some sort of ploy, some sort of scheme, some sort of deceit. We know that that is something that happened. He also would put Paul through this uh, life of what it really is like to be a Christian. What it's really like to go out and preach Jesus. We see that Paul uh, would go out and God would see how he would respond. How would he respond when he was resisted, when he faced opposition, when he would face this when he was speaking and proclaiming the name of Jesus out in the public, in synagogues, and sometimes even among Christians themselves who were skeptical or didn't like the way that he presented the gospel. And upon passing this test, God approved or entrusted him a word that means to be put in charge of or to commit the gospel of God. 
wasn't something that was taken lightly. God tested Paul. He tested Paul and he passed that test. And after he was entrusted or charged with the gospel, he and his traveling companions would continue to pass that test. And they would do so by their continual, internal, genuine motivation to truly seek the pleasures of God and further his interest over their own. So there's a few things I just want to kind of bring out here. What is it like, you know, not to please men, but God who tests our hearts? That's kind of a tough one, right? The word please here in the Greek means to seek favor with. Now we do this as human beings. We want favor with people. There's a natural tendency sometimes to want to be liked, people to, to, to think favorably of us. But there's a big difference in getting man's approval versus God's approval. There really is. It's at the heart of Jesus' teaching who taught this idea of intent versus the mere physical letter of the law. We see this when we open up Matthew, the fifth chapter. Starting there begins this thing called the Sermon on the Mount. And it gives us several of these examples where Jesus would use this phrase, you have heard that it was said to those of old. Multiple times he would say this, and then he would go on to expound on the spiritual intent, the, the, the heart of the matter, so to speak. As human beings, you know, we can do the right things, right? Or appear to do the right things. You know, we can keep the Sabbath. We can abstain from stealing. We can abstain from, you know, uh, physically, you know, verbally taking the Lord's name in vain, Right? You know, the very, very surface level of what that possibly could mean. We can say the right things. We can appear to do the right things. But of course, we still have an inward intent that sometimes is selfish, possibly. Not focused on truly pleasing God. And Jesus recognized this. And Matthew, the sixth chapter, in that same section, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, verse 1. Jesus says this, because he saw this happen all the time. You see, he lived in a world where he got to see religious leaders all the time. It was a very big part of culture, of society. Everyone was typically wrapped up in some sort of religious worship, some sort of sacred belief system. And in Matthew, the sixth chapter, verse 1, Jesus said, Take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them, Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. And therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet for you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Look how big of a check I gave the synagogue this week. Right? Okay? Hey, yeah, you know, look at all the help I'm doing. Everybody notice my, you know, how, how righteous I am. That seems to be the intent. That seems to be... What was taking place? And I think that Jesus, he, he, he sees this. And as someone, even though he's human, he's divine, he's been part of that, he's divested himself of his divinity and become a part of humanity. And he has all the wisdom that's supplied to him by God the Father. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will himself reward you. 
openly. And when you pray, you should not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So we see that there's this external righteousness that people sometimes never got past. They thought, well, that's, that's what being righteous is. Do these things, do those things, say these things, pray this direction, right? That formula theology. But inwardly, Jesus says we can be like white-washed poppins who are all pretty on the outside, shiny, nicely scrubbed, but on the inside are full of dead bones. Let's go to Matthew, the 23rd chapter. And let's just, we're not going to read all this. This is a huge, scathing rebuke of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. At the very beginning of this passage or of this chapter, Jesus talks about these religious leaders. And he's telling them, don't be like these individuals. Oh, they love, they love to be seen by people as righteous. They love the best seats, the best seats in the, at the feast, the best seats in the synagogues. They love the greetings in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. This term of honor, oh, rabbi, oh, you're so wise. And they would lord it over their people. And in verse 27, Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Now I didn't read that so we can sit here and think about the religious leaders of Jesus' day. But as an example of us to reflect on ourselves, Because that mentality, that practice is not limited to the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This same characteristic or these same characteristics these same issues of pride and outward righteousness can still be prevalent among us today you see we as humans we can't enter into the thoughts of people nor can we see the intent of their hearts as God can we can on the other hand examine their fruits and after a period of time maybe make a pretty good judgment of what people's motivations are but the ultimate foolproof test, the ultimate foolproof test is not possible for us as humans. And fortunately, it's not our job. We can only examine our own hearts and inward motivations. And even that is not foolproof. As we know, the heart of man is deceitful and desperately wicked, as Jeremiah tells us in chapter 17, verse 9. Paul tells us that they sought God's approval who knew their hearts. He says this for a specific reason. He knows that only God can truly examine their intent. He's calling on, and we're going to get to this in a minute, he's calling on the Thessalonians to think about, think about your experience with us. Let that be your judge. 
but he knows that their experience with him can't truly examine their inward thoughts and heart. I like this quote by Robert Thomas, who's the uh, expositor Bible commentary on uh, 1 Thessalonians, the revised edition. He said, ultimately, they sought God's approbation. Such a goal excluded anything ulterior or hidden from the eyes of him who tests our hearts. You can't have an ulterior motive and get by when it comes to God. There is no hiding. There is no masking when it comes to God. He says, the scrutiny of a God who is able to sound the depths of every thought is Paul's ultimate court of appeal and summoning evidence for his own absolute sincerity. There can be no greater witness than God who knows the depths of every one of our thoughts, and that's what Paul is appealing to. Now, much of what we read here, as we know, is focused on this idea of Paul and the integrity and the intent of his mission as evangelist, as an evangelist, but the principle of integrity should extend to all facets of our life. It shouldn't just be something that we think about when it comes to, you know, our Christian walk. That's not coherent to what Christianity is. Because Christianity is supposed to affect every aspect of our life. Because it is supposed to be changing who we are. It's creating in us a new tra transformation into a new creature after Jesus Christ. So in all aspects of our life, we have to have integrity. I think it was mentioned by David just a little while ago, and I might have misunderstood what he said, but let's just think of some examples. And the first one is what I'm referring to and what David said. Maybe you're at the, cash, maybe you're at the store, right? Little things like this happen all the time. When we used cash, this happened more. We don't really use cash as much. But you give, you pay for your item, and this has happened to me, and they give you back, you know, way more money than they're supposed to give you back. And right there you have an opportunity. Oh, man, they just gave me like $50 more than they were supposed to. I was supposed to get $10 back. They gave me $50 back. What do I do? Maybe we've all been in that situation before. Do you have the integrity? And I think and I trust and I have faith that all of us do. But those are situations like that that we might go through. Maybe we stumble across your student, right? And I know there are students in there. You stumble across the test key for the upcoming test that you're getting ready to test. It has all the answers. You find it. What do you do? You take it. You start studying that. You know, it's cheating, right? That's academic. Uh, you know, that, that, that you are breaching the academic integrity that you're, that you're called to as a student. Maybe you uncover something that a friend of yours is doing. You have a really good friend. You realize that they're involved in some sort of really criminal activity. And the bad part is, is that the criminal activity that they're involved in is going to bring a lot of heartache and pain, a lot of misery, a lot of problems for other people. It's really going to hurt people. So the question is, what do you do? I think we all know what we do. But these are the scenarios that I think of, and many, many more, of course, because there is no limit to the different scenarios that we might be involved in as we walk this life. I like this uh, quote. In Micah, the 6th chapter, verse 8. It's one of my favorite passages of all of Scripture. And I thought about this Scripture whenever I was thinking about the idea of integrity. Because at the, at the heart of the gospel message is simplicity. It really is. There's a lot of complexity to this, to some extent. You now, when we start 
you know, looking at different words and looking at different, you know, things that are kind of above our head. But at the heart of it is this idea that we're just these sinful creatures and that God loved us so much that he provided a way to reconcile himself back to us through the blood of a perfect sacrificial lamb. And in return, not only are we just forgiven and to go on with our life, but from that point forward, we've been buried with that individual and we are living a life that's transformed. It's not perfect. That old man still shows up. And there's one thing that's interesting. It's not one thing, but there's a couple things here that I always love to go to. In verse 8 of Micah, the 6th chapter, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's a beautiful passage. Now, (laughs) that entails so many different things. But the simplicity of it, God desires humility. He desires for us to walk justly, which includes, you know, with integrity. And he wants us to be merciful. He wants us to be merciful because we recall who we were naked and bare before a righteous God and all of our sins, before what he did for us. And so because of that, and in response to that, we are to ourselves to have a merciful attitude when it comes to how we deal with people. So the question is, what was the evidence for this? He says, you know, I didn't have these things. I, I didn't come to you in error. I didn't come to you in uncleanness. I didn't come to you with trying to be deceitful. But what is the evidence of this? What is the evidence that his motivation truly was just simply trying to do the will of God? Verses 5 and 6. We're going to read that real quick again. It says, For neither at any time, this is in 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. And verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. We have to remember that one of the things, as I mentioned just a minute ago, that Paul continually directs his readers to, their attention was to their own memories of what they witnessed and experienced firsthand from Paul and his associates. Paul is not trying to convince the Thessalonians because he knows they themselves know because they witnessed with their own experience how Paul was. He does this, of course, in verse 5. As you know, and he goes even further in verse 5 when he would call upon God himself as a witness, which we just read, As a witness, the greatest judge, the greatest court of appeal that there could be, who knows all things, and as he said, can examine the innermost thoughts and intentions of her heart. Paul wants the Thessalonians to verify his claims by noticing the absence of three things that would undoubtedly be present if indeed he was there just for self-interest. Now, these three negative behaviors, they were, again, characteristics of many hucksters or entertainers, as a lot of the times the commentaries call them, uh, who would come around and seek their own benefit in contrast to individuals' moral betterment. So they would come, say, I'm here to bring you a message that's going to help you, 
but really, they're there to help themselves. Number one, flattering words. Paul said, we didn't come to you with flattering words. We didn't come to you as salesmen. The meaning of this phrase or term denotes the use of saying nice things. Maybe, oh, you, you know, you guys are so great. You guys are wonderful. I've never seen anyone like you before. You're my best group I've ever preached to. Best group. I tell you what, you guys are amazing. And that's the kinds of things that Paul is talking about. Flattering words. The purpose, of course, to gain influence over others for selfish reasons. Sometimes for financial gain. Sometimes just to, of course, be looked at as in high esteem by men. This was, of course, a well-known trick that was pulled by many people who would go around talking as smooth talkers in this day and age to try to butter up their audience or to get them to fall for their message, to get them to uh, take action, whether that be give them money, whether that, that give them uh, you know, notoriety, so other, you know, not only just money, but you know, uh, go and, and market my, my, my teaching, right? Okay, I go market my teaching so other people want to come and hear what I have to say and I just have this revolving door of people being interested in what I have to say and I continue to gain from that. The second thing he says that was not there was a cloak for covetousness. little interesting word. This term that is used here is commonly used among the list of vices that we find in other parts of Scripture. Even Paul, like for example in Colossians 3rd chapter verse 5, it talks about the idea of covetousness or deceit. Now, Peter tells us in 2 Peter, the fifth, or 2nd chapter, verse 3, uh, that greed is a characteristic of false prophets who are out to exploit people for their own monetary advancement. But there is an interesting modifier here about this idea of covetousness. There's an interesting modifier. There's an interesting attachment to this word as we read here in the New King James Version, a cloak of covetousness. Now, a cloak, of course, what is it? It's a piece of clothing, right? It's, it's, it's a piece of clothing for the purpose of covering the body. And other uses of this term or word in the New Testament, the meaning is to put forward a false reason or a specious, I guess you would say, conduct as a cover-up for a real motive. Also, what is most interesting is that, there are, that here where Paul makes the statement, God is our witness, goes back to what we discussed earlier about how only God can examine the heart. And so this idea came about that Paul came and he didn't show them that his inward thoughts were deceitful. But he had a cloak on. He hid them. He disguised them. He covered them. He comes Kind of like the preachers we talk about, right? The preachers that would, that would uh, ask for seed money or would ask for people to, to you know, uh, write a prayer, send it in to us, you know, and, and give, a, give, a, give a donation, give an offering. So the idea, the cloak, the covering, what's put out as a pretext for why they're wanting to do this was to help them. And the offering, of course, was to, so they can continue their the ministry and continue to pray for people. The cloak was the good thing that they say that they were intending to do. That was the cloak. Behind it, though, was the deceit. And Paul's trying to spell, I didn't come to you and just act like I was there for your benefit, like I was there 
to really truly bring the gospel message to you because I care about your, you know, your, your relationship with God. I care about you to bring the truth of the gospel to you. That's what this word tends to mean. There's an interesting example, I think, that we can actually see from Paul himself on what he did to try to take great pains to not appear to have any kind of financial impiety. And we see that when we all have heard of this before. We read it First 1 Corinthians, right? The 16th chapter. Well, there was this issue going on where there was people starving, essentially, in Jerusalem. We've heard that before. And so what happened was is that people in Macedonia and Achaia, kind of where you know, Corinth was and where Thessalonica was, in this region of the world, they were taking up an offering. And the purpose of was to take it to Jerusalem and Judea, where these people were, brethren, were in great need. And we see this in 1 Corinthians, the 16th chapter, verses 1 through 4, where there's this gift. that Paul talks about this gift that's been taken up in Macedonia and Achaia for the relief for the believers or for the brethren that are in Judea. When he does this, it's interesting, though. We see that Paul makes sure that that gift is taken by multiple people and some of those people to be individuals that were chosen by the actual individual churches that, were take, that the offering was coming from. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 20, breaking into context here, talking about how Titus was one of the men that they were going to bring. And not only that, but who was also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself, and to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift, which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And so this is unrelated to this here in First Thessalonians. But it's an example of how he continued on later avoiding even the appearance of a potential financial impropriety. Now we, when we take up an offering on holy days, we kind of follow this same principle. We take up an offering. It's very simple. We're here all in the same building. But we have a policy here, and not to toot our horn or anything like that, but we do have a policy, which is a good policy, that we don't take the offering and be alone with it as we go and put it all in one basket to give to, to Rick, who is, happens to be uh, our uh, financial individual for the church. We want to make sure and that we show the appearance of, not just because we're trying to please men, but because we also want to abstain from the appearance of having a lack of integrity. So I think that that just kind of demonstrates why that's kind of a biblical principle. The third thing, seek glory from men. He said this is something that they did not do as we went on and on and on in this message. I wanted to read one more quote as we close this section of scripture. Robert Thomas, Expositor Bible's commentary, commentator for 1 Thessalonians, he says, The world of Paul's time was filled with wandering philosophers, prophets, and other religious leaders, magicians, false prophets, and others seeking not only financial gain, but also the prestige of a good reputation. Now, a lot of this we talk about today is wrapped up in financial gain because we see that so often 
But as Jesus shows us, and the examples that he gives us, it's not just financial gain that's a temptation for us as human beings. It's also a temptation for that, those, those best seats in the house, those best seats in the synagogue. And I'm talking spiritually. I'm talking metaphorically. For men to call us rabbi. Now, we might not have that desire, but for people to look up to us, for us to be looked at as, you know, you know in high esteem, which it's good, I think, to desire to want to be looked at as someone who's above reproach. But I think that we see this oftentimes in Scripture where there's this desire in the heart of man that's motivated by pride, by wanting credit, by wanting our will done, by wanting whatever's done at the end of it, in the back of our mind, we're thinking, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? As we conclude this message today, let's just think about that idea of integrity. Let's think about those ideas that we can think about that Paul brings out. Let's think about that quick little phrase that Paul said, God is our witness. We can examine our own hearts, and even though it's not foolproof as we talked about it, but let's just think about our will, our intentions, our motivations, and how they manifest themselves as we live this life. God tests our heart. God knows everything that we think. He knows everything that we're about, our motivations. He sees those small things and he sees those big things. God wants us to walk uprightly and justly. He wants us to walk with integrity. As we end this message, let us go on the rest of this week and let's think about that idea of are we living a life of integrity? Are we walking a life with integrity?